my niece uh, Janice is an um, All-American volleyball player, and she won a scholarship to UConn to play volleyball. And I know that through high school and in junior high, as she was preparing to get to that level, uh, she had to show up in the morning at 4 o'clock to the swimming pool to build up her leg muscles for three hours before school started. Then after school got out, she went to the gym and began competing again, all to get to the point where she had the endurance to be able to compete at that level and eventually paid off and, and got her a full ride to UConn and that's when the work really began. She, she found out later that getting into a, a major college university and playing at the All-American level um, is not to be taken lightly. It's, it's like a full-time job. And so watching those guys last night and those ladies compete in the swimming competition made me realize the amount of effort that they have poured into that little three-minute three minute segment, perhaps, or maybe even shorter if they're running in a, or racing in a 100-meter race all for the purpose of being able to endure and to stay strong to the end. And I realized while I'm watching that last night that God tries to build up the endurance in us by giving us testing like that, by sending trials our way sometimes, by testing us in ways that we never dreamed could be from God. It just can't be because this is just such a hard, hard test. But in the midst of it, he tells us to hang on and to trust him because it's for our good. I want you to look in the screen with me at this passage from Hebrews chapter 10. It's not what we're studying this morning, but I just want to draw your attention to it before we launch into Genesis. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, meaning you. You're the righteous one that he's speaking of. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Here's where we've been at. We started 12 weeks ago looking at this endurance race that Abraham started on when God called him out of the Ur of Chaldees. He was about 70 years old. He left everything behind, moved all the way up to an area called Haran on the bottom of the border of Turkey, present-day Turkey, southern border, Stayed there 15 years and then moved down into what we today call Israel because God said, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, even though he had no children, didn't have a single heir, no child to his name, and he's in his 70s. But God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you in such a way that all the world will be blessed through you. And I'm going to bring blessing upon you in the way of prosperity upon your business and upon those who come in contact with you. As a matter of fact, to the degree that those who bless you, I'll bless them. And those who curse you, I will curse them. And we've seen that in the last 10 to 12 weeks as God's carried out that cursing upon some people who took it out on Abraham and blessings upon others who came in contact with him. And today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 21. 
So if you have a minute, you might want to go ahead and turn there if you brought your Bible with you this morning. And if not, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And if this is your first time here at New Hope, those Bibles that are there, if you don't own a Bible, they're for you to take with you. If you need a Bible, feel free to take one of those out of the pew rack when you leave today. We're about in the journey, 1880 B.C. This is right around the time of the Wangqing Dynasty in China, about the time they were discovering how to make silk. The other events in the world that were going on, this is the time when people were leaving Greece and making very large sailboats, and they were sailing down into the southeastern part of the Mediterranean, and they were settling in an area called Philistia, or the Philistines. Among the people of Egypt, this is the midst of uh, a dynasty that's called the Hyksos dynasty, in between the pharaohs. This is the Middle Ages of Egypt. About 1880 B.C. is when Abram finally sees God begin to reveal to him the promise of this little baby that he said, I'm going to bless you with. He's living in a region, a kingdom called Gerar. And in Gerar, there's a king there by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech recognizes God's hand is really on this guy. As a matter of fact, he says to him, everything you do, God blesses. He came right out and said that. God is with you in all that you do. That's down in the bottom of the chapter. Now, the setting for this circumstance that Abraham finds himself in is living in Gerar, an area that gets only about 6 to 10 inches of rainfall a year. And he's a herder, a herdsman, and he has this massive enterprise to take care of. We're talking thousands of heads of livestock. And he needs crops to graze them. So he begins digging wells because they learned in this area in Gerar that 20 feet below the ground is a layer of clay. And all the water that does fall up on the mountains that comes down stays above this clay in a water table. And so if they just dig down 20 feet, they can find all the water that they need. And so that's what Abraham does. As a matter of fact, it's so productive today by doing that same practice that they actually grow citrus crops in this area. They raise onions, things that need lots of water because they found a way to maintain it. This is becoming a nice place to raise a family once Abraham digs his wells. And it's in this setting that we find Abraham right now in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1. Four years have passed since what we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 20. And God continues to bless him. It's evident that God's hand is on everything that he's doing. Now look with me at Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, or Itzak. Can you say that word with me? Itzak. It means laughter. They named him laughter. God said, you're going to name him Isaac. His name will be laughter because every time you call him, laughter, come here. There's laughter over there playing because she's 90 years old and he's 100 years old. Nothing like this had ever happened on the face of the earth that a 90-year-old would give birth to a child. 
So God said, I'm going to go one better than that. I want you to name him Laughter to remind you of the joy that he's going to bring into your life. God keeps his promises in his own way. That's the conclusion we can draw out of that. First two verses, God keeps his promises in his own way. But regrettably, what most of us would draw this conclusion is, as we're going through this 25-year waiting time like they went through, it's done in his own time. And that is incredibly frustrating. God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to keep my promise. But you're going to have to abide by my timing, the way that I'm going to bring it about. And in spite of the occasional failures on the part of Abraham and Sarah, God still honored them because they were faithful to him. And so 25 years from the time he said, I'm going to do this, he waited until Abraham was so old he couldn't do it himself. And then he blesses him with his child. Now, at first glance, when you look at this verse, you might say, If this has been promised for 25 years, where's the trumpets? Where's the red carpet? Where's the fanfare? Why isn't there some huge celebration? And all we get out of it is, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. But if you look closely at that passage, you see that the emphasis is on God's faithfulness to his promise. Look at this. Three times in the first two verses, God says, as he had said, as he had promised, at the appointed time. These are all revealing that God did exactly what he said he would do in the time he said he would do it, specifically to the details. He's calling attention back to himself. It's not about the child, it's about God's promises. So when you're going through this kind of thing and you're waiting 25 years for God to reveal what he's about to do, Would you ask yourself this question? Man, God, did you forget me? Have you ever asked that question? God, have you forgotten about me? Does God forget? Does God ever forget? There's one word in here that troubles me in some of the translations of Scripture. It says in the verse 1, then the Lord took note. In some of the translations you have, it might say, Then the Lord remembered. And I see that word occur throughout various places in Scripture, especially when God's referring to Noah. It said, the Lord remembered Noah in the ark. The actual word for that is pakad, P-A-Q-A-D. And it means that God was attentive to what was going on. He was watching over them. It doesn't mean God forgot and, oh yeah, there's Sarah. That's right, 25 years ago, I promised I would do something. I better bring that to pass. No, what it means is God's watching her intently and decided this is the time. God took note and said, I'm about to bring this to pass. Isaiah 44, 6 declares who our God is that doesn't forget. Look on the screen. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses... 
Is there any God besides me? Or is there any rock? I know of none. And God's saying, you can take it to the bank. There is no one that can do these kind of things but me. Now, in Scripture, we learn that God waited all this time to fulfill what he was about to bring to pass because he wanted Abraham to not be capable of doing this on his own. You remember learning about 17 years previous in time when we looked at this four weeks ago that Abraham decided to take it upon himself and father a child by the name of Ishmael through a slave girl, an Egyptian. He decided to go into the tent and do it on his own because he was going to help God out. Okay? In Scripture, especially when you look at the book of Galatians in the New Testament, I'll give you an assignment to do that sometime this week when you get a chance. Read Galatians chapter 4, in which Paul writes about the struggle between Ishmael and Isaac, and how Ishmael represents the things of the flesh, the things that we do prior to coming into relationship with God, and that Isaac represents the things of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. You've heard about all those if you grew up in church? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul links Isaac together and saying, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the blessing of waiting upon God. It's like Isaac when those fruits begin to surface in you. And Ishmael are the fruits of the flesh, those things that you don't want to be part of. Now look with me at verse 4. Keep that in mind as we work through this. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son to him in his old age. It's taken a long time to get to this point. We've just been in this for 10 weeks studying this. You imagine being Sarah and hearing this promise when you're 60 years old, 70 years old, 75 years old, 80. We're talking weeks. They're talking decades. And God's saying, just be patient. It's going to happen. Hang in there. I'm going to do what I promised. And all this time, she's wearing the burden of childlessness. And in this culture, to not have a child was as though God had smited you, as though you were not accepted in culture. You saw that earlier when we looked at Hagar tormenting Sarah because she had no children. And Abraham, her husband's got the name father of a great nation. Can you imagine the laughter that went on behind their back? Father of a great nation, he has no children. He then gets one son by a slave. That's not the father of a multitude. Verse 8 says that they're going to celebrate this child. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Jewish children were weaned when they were three years old. It means they no longer needed to be at their mother's side for nutrition. But it wasn't taking place until age three. And at age three, traditionally, they would throw a huge celebration. 
It was as though the son was stepping into a new realm of manhood, even though he was still a boy. Now, Ishmael at this stage is 17 years old. And what we begin to see unfolding next is a living out of what God had promised. Do you remember a few chapters ago when we looked at it and God said, Ishmael, this child that you have born by the slave Hagar, he will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be fighting with everyone. He will be an aggressor. What we see in the next verse is a living out of that. Ishmael becomes an aggressor. Verse 9, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. If you've ever seen some of those old Bible movies that people made about the life of Abraham, or perhaps if you grew up in church, you saw the uh, little pictures they put in the handouts they gave to kids when they were in Sunday school, and it might have shown about an eight-year-old teasing a three-year-old. That's not an accurate picture. What you have here is a 17-year-old young man tormenting a three-year-old. The word is diaco. And when it says that he was mocking him, this is what he was doing. He was persecuting him, following after him, and pushing him. He was a bully, and he was shoving him into the ground. Now, you can bet this isn't the first time that this happened. Otherwise, Sarah would not have reacted the way that she did. A 17-year-old tormenting a 3-year-old. Do you begin to see a picture of someone who's an aggressor? An aggressive nation came out of his loins. God said, this whole people group who will come from him will be an aggressive people. Now, let's look at the next verse. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named, and the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. I want to remind you of something. Sixteen years previous to this time, God showed up and was talking with Abraham, and Abraham was begging that Ishmael would become the heir that would receive everything that Abraham had. Abraham said to God, Oh God, that Ishmael may live before you. Bless him. And what did God say? No way. He is not the one. Now Isaac and Ishmael could have lived together, but there would have been constant friction in the house. They were at each other, and they would have become more at each other as time went on. So what you see unfolding here is God's delayed judgment. God's given him 17 years to deal with this issue of Ishmael, saying ultimately Ishmael is not going to receive the blessing, and he needs to be moved out. But Abraham kept Ishmael in his household, and now God shows up and he says to him, whatever Sarah tells you to do, that's what I want you to do. Now, if Isaac, I told you, represents the work of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, gentleness, meekness, Ishmael, according to Scripture, represents the flesh, the things that we bring, that God says, put those away. I don't want you to 
have those in your life. And that's what the writer of Galatians unfolds for us in Galatians chapter 4. That's why I want you to read that. Because Paul explains that if we hang on to those Ishmaels in our life, those things are the works of the flesh, and we hold on to them long enough, when God eventually sends them out, it is really, really going to rip us apart. Because it's become part of who we are for such a long time. It could be a habit in your life. It could be a person in your life. Someone who is like an Ishmael, who is the work of the flesh, and God said, you're not to have a part of that. That is not what I'm working through. That is not your future. You need to step over into the new plan that I have for you. And so look what happens as Abram has to send him out. God said, you are distressed. I recognize this. Do not be distressed. Now, as a father with two sons, I can't imagine how much grief that would cause me to have to say to my 17-year-old, you need to go find a new place to live because the amount of grief that you're bringing into this household does not work here. And God's saying, send him out. Now, we use the word grievous too lightly in our society. The word is ra'ah. And I want you to look at a couple different definitions for it because Hebrew has multi-layers of definitions for words. So first, when you see the first definition of ra'ah, that's the word distressed, it means to be evil or bad. Now think in terms when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and the Egyptians worshipped the sun god, ra'ah. That's what they called him because they viewed him as being evil or wicked. So the first meaning for them, the word ra'ah, is evil. Now look at the next definition for it. Good for nothing. Breaking in pieces. Now combine wicked evil with breaking in pieces. And you have a picture of what's going on in the heart of Abraham, feeling there is nothing good that can come from this. How could you ask me to do this, God? I am so grievous over this. You're asking me to separate from something that I hold closely to me. And God's saying, send him out just as your wife Sarah has asked you to do. If you've been in the Christian life very long, you know that you've come to a point in which God has asked you to do something that is incredibly hard and makes no sense whatsoever. What Henry Blackaby defines as the crisis of belief. The word picture that the Hebrews used for this word ra'ah was much like they described the sides of their tents when they were nomadic people and a windstorm came blowing through the camp and the sides of their tents flipped up and began shuddering in the wind and shaking, much like your curtains might on your own home windows. This was so grievous to Abraham that the literal word picture here is he began shuddering and shaking. He was aching so bad. This is a crisis of belief. Do I believe God... Or am I so attached to that thing that's in my life that I've got to hold on to it at all costs? And God, I'm sure you've got a great plan, but this is what I know. This is familiar to me. 
This is a really, really hard place, a turning point, not in just the nation of Israel, but in the life of Abraham. This is the point at which you see the nation of Israel and the Arab nation separate. What you're living with today in watching the playing out in the Middle East of the friction between a country that will say, I will wipe them off the face of the map, and an Israeli nation that's arming themselves in such a way that they're going to fight back at all costs, you're seeing a playing out of Ishmael and Isaac, a friction, a fighting, and God knew that that was going to take place, and he didn't want them in the same household together. This was way bigger than Abraham, more than he could possibly comprehend. So look at the next verse. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham chose God. Abraham chose to obey God even though it cost him. Oh, God, I can't believe you're asking me to do this. You ever had a moment like that in your life when God has asked you to do something so big that makes no sense? But God saw Abraham as being faithful. There is so much more woven together here than just the facts of history. And God says emphatically that Ishmael will never be part of the blessing. Isaac is the part. He's the future. Now, God did not abandon Hagar, if you don't know the story at all. What happened here is she got lost. She went out in the wilderness and she began to wander what should have been just a two-day journey into her hometown in Egypt, became multiple days in the desert. Abraham sent her out with enough provisions to protect her, and somehow she got lost. That's where we pick it up in verse 15. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy, 17 years old, under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The remaining verses of this chapter, I'm just going to let you read on your own when you get a chance from verse 22 on. But there's one particular thing that Abraham learns about God through the midst of this time. This all took place within a couple days, period of time. And at the very end of this chapter, you see Abraham using a brand new name for God. It's down in verse 33, and it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham knew El Elyon, the one God who was the Most High, and he knew God, El Shaddai, the Almighty, but now he's introduced to a whole new name, El Elyon, and it means the everlasting God. 
We use that phrase all the time in our worship today in church. The everlasting God. This is the first time it's introduced in Scripture. All this time, Abraham's been walking with God 25 years, and he's just now heard this new phrase. You're everlasting. You're El Elyon. 25 years mature in the faith, and he's still learning new things about God. I think each of us need to be in that place. Every time we come in here on Sunday or we come in here on Wednesday for classes or some other time of the week when you're studying your scriptures, we have to be in that place where we're saying, God, show me something new about you. Reveal something that I don't know. El Elyon, what a revelation for him. So he comes to that place now where he's been reminded, God, you're everlasting. You've got a purpose in this. And with that thought in mind, let's go back to that very first verse I read to you in Hebrews at the beginning of this message. Hebrews 10.35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Why do I remind you of that? What we're about to do here with communion this morning is for that very purpose. It's a reminder to give us endurance Because he who said he will be coming, will be coming. We just confirmed through studying through Scripture, God fulfills his promises. Now, just because it hasn't happened in our time frame doesn't mean it won't happen. So God gave us communion. When Jesus instituted this, he said, what's the purpose for it? So that you will remember until I come again, remember what I did for you. Let me read you the passage as we get ready for communion from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, why? In remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If this is your first time here at New Hope, I want to share something with you that those who are regular here at New Hope hear all the time, that there's another passage Another couple verses to this description. That as you come up to participate in communion or what we call the Lord's Supper, do not do it light of heart. Because Jesus gave us a warning saying that those of us who participate in this had better be in right relationship with him. Or there's a severe penalty for it if you're not. This is what it actually says in verse 27. Therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
I do not personally want to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, meaning guilty of crucifying him. That's a strong warning. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. This time right now, when it's just going to be quiet in here, and I'm praying for you that you're dealing with God in issues of the things that stand between you and him. First time here for some of you, this is how we do communion. Guys are going to be up there playing, and at some point, when you feel comfortable, you can get up and come into the center aisle, and there'll be uh, Jerry Smith and Larry Brown will be up here, and as you come up to get communion, they're just going to say to you, this is the blood of Christ. This is the body of Christ to remind you the purpose of it, why we're doing it. And if you'll take the bread and the cup and go back and just sit down in your seat, then I will continue to lead you. But this time right now is just for you to deal with God, just to talk to him about where you're at.